Listeners, welcome to the next episode of The Goods. Hey Dan, glad to be here. This is Dan and, and Brian, and we are here to talk about the 1987 film, Some Kind of Wonderful. Uh, did you get a chance to catch up with this one, Brian? I did. Although I'll say I had to check back in Messenger like 20 times to remind myself of the title. I, I think we need some titles that have like specific nouns in them. You know, there's there's movies like Everybody Wants Some or She's Gotta Have It. Something's Gotta Give. Yeah, exactly. It's a very generic title. The one thing that I think they were trying to do to be clever. So Some Kind of Wonderful is the title of a song from the 1950s, an R&B song that's about not having money and all you need is love in your life. So it's like kind of thematically relevant, the song. The song doesn't appear in the film. So I think it's overly clever and ends up with a very bland title. So I, I'm with you on that. But I did track it down. I watched it and I'm ready to talk about it. So like I mentioned, this film came out in 1987. It is a John Hughes project. So he wrote the script, but it's actually directed by Howard Deutsch. So Howard Deutsch got three or four of the the films that, that John Hughes wrote, particularly if they were kind of minor projects, like not necessarily the ones that Hughes was really enamored with and wanted to direct himself. And this was the second one that Deutsch directed of Hughes's. The first one was Pretty in Pink. And Pretty in Pink actually has a pretty similar story structure to this, which I'm going to get to in a sec. But I wanted to, to revisit what I said at the end of last episode, which is why I actually picked this movie. And it's because there's a specific story structure that I have been minorly obsessed with for years maybe dating back to middle school or possibly early high school it is a i wouldn't call it a trope it's really more of like a collection of tropes in a single story story structure story format i don't know but the gist of it is a romance film usually with you know high schoolers or young people it doesn't have to be but it usually is where there's a guy and a girl seemingly platonic best friends who are you know have good chemistry they're they're pretty tight and then the guy so it's usually from mainly the guy's perspective at least the ones that that I am particularly interested in from the guy's perspective he feels like he's got a shot with some glamorous girl you know maybe the popular girl at school the the girl that he's always had the hots for or whatever and he pursues that that girl Meanwhile, he and his platonic friend begin to realize that maybe they are more than just friends. Maybe there's there's some other chemistry going on there that is more than than just friendly. I I don't know why. I mean, I kind of have some ideas why. And maybe we can talk about that why I like this story, this type of story. But this is uh one of the examples of basically that exact story. Interestingly, Pretty in Pink which is the first Howard Deutsch, John Hughes pairing, is almost that exact story except flipped from the girl's perspective. So she goes for one of the popular guys. And I'm going to spoil Pretty in Pink if you don't mind. Oh, I've seen Pretty in Pink. Oh, you have? Yes. So John Hughes, John Hughes wrote it to have Ducky, the best friend guy, actually be the guy that she ends up with. 
But Howard Deutsch and the the producers even filmed that and put it in the initial cut, but test audiences didn't like the ending. They wanted her to end up with the, the Harry Dean Stanton character. So they wrote a new ending. They filmed it, and that's the the canonical ending to Pretty in Pink. That's funny. I'd never heard that. Yeah. So John Hughes was really upset about that. He really wanted it to be as he initially wrote it. That's not, not what happened. So he, he wrote this movie almost in response to not getting the initial ending he wanted. He wrote some kind of wonderful. And they filmed it. And this one actually does go the other way. So spoiler up front. The main character in this film, Keith, played by Eric Stoltz, ends up with Watts, who is Mary Stuart Masterson, who is his best friend. The popular girl that is the object of Keith's initial attention is named Amanda Jones, played by Leah Thompson. Yeah, I thought this was an interesting cast because prior to this, the only time I'd ever heard the name Eric Stoltz before was on my Back to the Future making of documentaries on the DVDs because I know that he was originally cast as Marty McFly and like not just cast, but they had actually done five weeks of filming. Like I think they shot most of the movie with Eric Stoltz in the role, but then something came open in Michael J. Fox's schedule, like the TV show he was on wasn't keeping him as busy as he thought. And the filmmakers thought, oh, we've got a bigger star ready to be in the movie. So let's have a do-over. I think this is the only thing that I've seen Eric Stoltz in. And I have to say, having seen him here, I think the Back to the Future cast, I mean, producers made, made the right decision. I suppose that's true. <laughs> but w- here we see him paired with Leah Thompson. That's true, uh, yeah. Who plays Marty's mom in Back to the Future. And it's almost like a alternate universe reunion here. Right. So before we dive into the film itself, I just wanted to spend another minute to talk about this uh, this story structure that I've thought a lot about over the past decade or two. I went to TV Tropes. I assume you're familiar with the site TV Tropes. Yes, and I, I tried to collect the TV tropes defined tropes that kind of all make up this, this story that I'm talking about, this story type. So one is, of course, you need uh, just friends and it can coincide with childhood friend romance potentially by the end of it. But you need to have a guy and a girl who are just friends. And one of them, at least, if not both of them, need to be oblivious to love. And that's another one from TV Tropes. And of course, at the end, if it's going to go the way that Some Kind of Wonderful did, and not the way that Pretty in Pink ended up going, there needs to be the love epiphany. So in this case, the, the Eric Stoltz character at some point needed to realize what he was feeling towards Watts. Typically, this will have the last minute hookup because there's a one character pining, the other one has the love epiphany. Boom, they hook up. Those are kind of the key ones, the, the core ones that you need in, in, in this type of romantic comedy. Some that you'll often see but not always see is if you have a tomboy and a girly girl. That's one of the ones from TV Tropes. So in this case, we do have that. Mary Stuart Masterson plays Watts, and she's very much a tomboy. And then the girly girl is usually the the one that the initial object of affection. In this case, it's uh, Leah Thompson with the Amanda Jones character. When you have a tomboy and you have a, a guy and a girl who are best friends, you often end up with the, the one of the boys tropes, and that's... Sort of what Watts is here. She kind of, because she's the tomboy and she's tight with Keith, she, she's one of the boys a little bit before, of course, her, her feelings become prominent. 
The examples that check all of these boxes that I've seen, that I'm aware of in movies, are this film, of course. There's another one that I brought up at the end of last episode called Trojan War. This is a 1996 comedy starring Will Friedle. That one is maybe one that we can talk about someday. It's it's kind of a, a stupid comedy, but it's got good chemistry in the actors in that one. I would say even better than this film. Oh, I fully expect... I fully expect that one to make an appearance someday. I'll give you I'll give you a break from this story type for for maybe a, a few episodes, but I'll bring it up at some point. There's a truly dire comedy called Secret Admirer, starring the the Full House actress who got arrested on the college bribery scam. Do you did you ever read that? What's her name? Oh, Lori Loughlin. Yes, yeah, she's the she's the quote unquote one of the boys except it's kind of weird where she's not actually a tomboy but anyways that comedy is real bad and then the last movie of this type that i'm aware of at least is called snow day is a nickelodeon film that was initially gonna be a adventures of pete and pete spinoff movie i don't know if you've ever saw adventures of pete and pete brian i did not i know it's one of the early nickelodeon shows i remember the trailers for snow day we would rent the Rugrats episode orange VHS tapes from Blockbuster and it would have trailers for the Nickelodeon movies coming out like Snow Days and Clock Stoppers. So spoiler for a couple months from now, I am going to pick this movie at some point because this was like a a nostalgia movie for me. I don't think it's actually good and I've only seen it like once since I've graduated high school when I was just feeling nostalgic. And I remember it not being quite as good as I thought it was when I was in middle school. I think that would be a fun one for us to visit together. Yeah, I think it'll be a good winter pick. Definitely. But if you're going to go down this story trope, the one that is the best example of it, in my mind, that that I've ever seen, is what you brought up last episode when I kind of described this, this story format. And that is the Nickelodeon TV show, Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide, which I have been a big fan. I was a little old for it. I think I was in early high school when it started coming out, and it's aimed at middle schoolers or younger, but I loved that show. I rewatched it with my wife a few years ago. We watched the whole thing, and I mean, it's stupid. You know, it's like a dumb middle school comedy, but it is such a manic energy to it, and the characters have really, really good chemistry. Um, it's, it's a, it's a great middle school show that I hope to someday show my kids. And the two main characters are Ned and his best friend, Mose. And over the course of three seasons, they gradually build friendship chemistry to romantic chemistry with one of my all time favorite TV finales. Ned gets transformed into a wild man, gets his head bonked and has visions of Mose to the song, Big Brown Eyes by the old 97s, an alt-country band. That is as people had been frequently describing her as having big brown eyes all throughout the, the finale. It was a phenomenal bit of writing and music synergy there. Anyways, to me, that is like the signature example of this story trope, this story format. Sorry to just kind of laundry list through these, but because I'm on the topic, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to air my thoughts. Oh, please do. <laughs> There's a book called Let It Snow. And it's three novellas mashed into one book. One of them is by John Green, who is one of my favorite writers and just people in general. His novella is called A Cheertastic Christmas Miracle. 
And it is really, really good. It is like my number one. I need to read it once a year. I read it when I'm feeling down. And it is basically this exact story, but with a whole epic quest to get to Waffle House thrown in. They did adapt this years after the book came out. That might be one I recommend at some point, too, because it's a pretty interesting... uh, It almost has like a Love Actually vibe to it because they mash up these three stories. Whereas in the book, it's like, here's one full story. Here's a second full story. Here's a third full story. In the movie, they bounce between them and they add in some new stuff. So the things I think that make this type of story work well are, first of all, you really need to have good chemistry between the friends. And it needs to be very well established that they are, in fact, not romantically interested in each other. And that's one of the reasons that Ned's works so well is because the two actors um, are are fantastic, like just being goofy with each other. And you can both tell that they have a connection and that it's not romantic at the start. You also need to really feel and kind of understand that that Ned or not Ned, the, the Ned stand in. In this case, it's Keith has this lust, this attraction to the glamorous girl character. And by the way, the reason I'm kind of outlining these things is I feel like we should revisit this checkbox at the end of the film. Like each of these points does. Oh yeah. Did it it hit hit those boxes? Yeah. Check the boxes. And I think it, I think it'll come through as we discuss the film. So again, one, do we actually see a connection between the two leads Two, do we actually feel that the guy is really interested in the glamorous girl? The last thing you need that's really important is you need the love epiphany to be believable. So when the guy realizes that, no, he's actually interested in his best friend at the end, it needs to be believable. And it also, at its best, comes with some sort of like philosophical understanding, not just a romantic understanding, but a philosophical understanding, usually along the lines of, I should appreciate and take joy in the things that I have really bring me joy and happiness in this life, as opposed to this thing that I kind of desire for, even though they might not be right for me. Yeah. Watch the donut, not the hole. Exactly. Yeah. Grass is greener on the other side, etc. We'll hit on those points as we go through, but maybe we can revisit those three things at the end. That has been a long prelude. And thank you again for indulging me to, to talk about this. Was there anything you wanted to, to uh, talk about before we actually got to some kind of wonderful from 1987. I think I'm just about ready. I'll pepper in my thoughts as spice in amidst the recap. Sounds good. Apparently there is a well-regarded young adult adaptation of this movie that the author wrote in conjunction with John Hughes and explores the characters in more depth and gives them a little bit more rounded uh, backstories and I was able to track down a copy and I ordered it and it'll be coming in later this weekend. So I'm excited to actually read it and see if it gives me new insight into this film. <laughs> Additional backstory. Exactly. Yeah. Because there are some things, there's a scene where he goes to a concert and he said, Oh, she told me not in words necessarily that she would be here. And that's never actually explained. And apparently it's like there's some missing dialogue or backstory that the concert was the favorite band of Amanda's character. But because we don't have that backstory, we don't know why he's waiting for her at this concert. And so it's uh, 
I'm wondering how many things there are like that that are going to get a little bit more. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. That came out of nowhere. He's just like standing there. She says, why are you standing here? (laughs) Oh, I I thought she was going to come. Well, why did you think that? I don't really know. All right, I'm going to jump into the story now. So this movie opens and we get glimpses of all the main characters. We have Keith. We have his best friend who's a drummer, Watts. And then we see Amanda who is currently with a boyfriend. And during this opening sequence, Keith is literally straddling train tracks, kind of walking down train tracks, which sets up the obvious metaphor of right side of the tracks versus wrong side of the tracks. And also he stares down this oncoming train and like barely jumps out of the the way, which is kind of, I think, some foreshadowing of what is to come about how there's kind of like this element of of a class battle going on here, but also that Keith is going to barely miss making some sort of bad decision or bad epiphany here. I guess I can see that. A last-minute choice that he makes. But the tone here was really strange for me. It was a moment of menace. Like the train is, you know, blaring its whistle as it's bearing down on him. It reminded me of in Stand By Me, the Kiefer Sutherland character, who's like the sociopath bully, has a scene where he is driving his car and he like plays chicken with a log truck. And at the last moment, the log truck veers out of the way. Oh, wow. I haven't seen Stand By Me. That's one that's been on my list for a while. But yeah, I completely agree. I'm not sure how well it actually works and what it's trying to convey. It is just, it's kind of bizarre. Yeah. I mean, in that moment, it serves to make Kiefer Sutherland's character really scary. <laughs> and here, I was like, is that what they're going for here at the start of this rom-com? But we, we meet Keith, played by Stoltz. He works in a garage. And after work, he he walks by Amanda's place and he's obviously pining for her. He goes home and we meet his his loving but bickering family, including his dad. And his dad really wants Keith to apply for colleges so that he can avoid his family's blue-collar life in his future. So not to harp on Back to the Future parallels too much, but this scene reminded me a little bit. It comes about the same point in the runtime as at the start of Back to the Future when he, uh, when Marty gets home from school and we meet his family for the first time. And there's a similar focus on decisions that affect the future. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, no, I, I really, I mostly had Back to the Future on the brain <laughs> because of the, the cast, as I said, but could just be an, a commonality of 80s teen films. Yeah, I think so. Although often in these teen comedies, the family is like the worst part of the movie. It's like they just kind of got to be there by necessity. Here, I actually don't think that's true. I, I think the, the family is pretty entertaining and I actually wanted to spend more time with them. I particularly like the sister character, Laura, played by Maddie Corman. She's kind of like, uh, I don't know if she's in the same high school or she's going to be in the same high school. I, I always like the dynamic when there's like a young, a younger si- sibling character who is kind of like more popular and more social than the older character and who kind of like almost picks on the older sibling for being dorky. That's always a fun dynamic. And I think this uh, Maddie Corman, who plays Laura, does it really well. But the main point of conflict is that the dad, Clifford, and there's this ongoing thing where Keith calls his parents by their first names, and he really relishes calling his dad Clifford over and over again. 
But the next day, Keith is headed to school and he's riding with Watts. So Watts has this just truly decrepit, beat up old little sedan. She dresses like a tomboy. She doesn't seem to care much about school, but she clearly does have this connection with Keith. She's able to kind of guess what's on his mind. They have some good banter back and forth. Watts has a lot of good witty barbs throughout this film. As they're walking into school, I don't think it's the first day of school. There's no signs that it is, but it kind of has a start of something vibe to it. So I'm not really sure if we were supposed to infer that it was like a first day of school or something. Shortly after they arrive, they're they're walking in the halls or it's outside or something, and they bump into this guy, Duncan. I, I really like this character. He's credited as skinhead in the film in the credits and on IMDb. And I don't know why they credited him as skinhead. He's clearly like that's the stock character he's playing. But he's named and he appears a lot and I don't know why he was it like it's like calling, I don't know, Amanda's character love interest or something in the credits. So that was kind of funny. So I always think of him as skinhead when I see Well, that. I agree. A lot of the film is spent humanizing him. And they make a big point of it when they give him a name and use it throughout the rest of the movie. So I was surprised by that as well. I was like looking for Duncan in the credits and it's like, oh, that he must be the guy listed as skinhead. But that seems like an odd choice. But in appearance, he looks a little bit like Suicide from Return of the Living Dead. He's got just uh, not not as cartoonish, but some of the same trappings. Oh, yeah, that's true. I didn't think of that. It's true. He's kind of like this. Uh, slightly over the top personality about like being this tough guy. You think this is a costume? This is a way <laughs> of life. <laughs> I loved that guy. That movie. That was pretty funny. I need to watch that again. So th- this encounter here is where we get one of the only examples of this film where something that John Hughes wrote that might have been acceptable in the 80s would now be considered in poor taste. Although many of his films have a lot of those. This one actually doesn't have too many of those. Duncan is like teasing Watts and calls her a lesbian because she's, you know, she's tomboyish. She's got short hair and Keith kind of stands up for her, which causes a scuffle and Duncan gets detention, which will be important in a few scenes. So then we cut to uh, later in the school day, Amanda. So she's the one played by Leah Thompson, the one that Keith is clearly lusting after. We see her boyfriend, Hardy. We meet him. So he's this rich douchebag guy. He's flirting all over the place. He's he's just bad news all around. He's flirting with some other girl and Amanda catches him in the act. He's able to kind of brush it off, but kind of sets up this sense that uh, Amanda and Hardy are in the middle of some of this tension, perhaps, as she's becoming wise to his his ways. And I got to say, Hardy is a Pantheon-level D-bag boyfriend. He's, he's just a great villain. I really loved it whenever he was on screen. He has a couple of uh, pretty prominent scenes throughout the film. He has one of the largest foreheads I've ever seen on any human being. It just gives him this kind of arrogant, dopey demeanor. Yeah, he's, he's a great D-bag boyfriend. I think it also needs to be said at this point that in addition to the monstrous forehead... He also has a very prominent Cliff Chin. This might as well be called Cliff Chin's The Movie <laughs> because yeah. Eric Stoltz also has a very defined Cliff Chin, as does Leia Thompson. So it, in elementary school, I, I've heard them called butt chins. And oh, yeah. I, I just kept 
coming back to that as I was watching this film. It's like three quarters of the leading cast is Gaston. My favorite butt chin, cleft chin in uh, any movie or show is in The Wonder Years, the TV show. Danica McKellar, uh, Winnie Cooper. When the, the show starts and she was younger, she does not have a cleft chin. But over the course of the next six seasons, the the cleft gradually appears. So she has a full-on butt chin by the end of the show. It's like you can track where you are in the show's history by how much cleft there is in her chin. <laughs> Rise of the cleft. <laughs> so this tension between Amanda and Hardy, their apparent oncoming falling out, along with Keith's interest in Amanda, kind of sets everything in motion. And Watts notices this. And she's she's pretty tense and surprised when Keith admits to being interested in Amanda. Of course, when Hardy finds out that Keith is potentially interested in Amanda, he's not too happy about it either. He gets the line while uh, Keith is filling up his gas at, at the, the gas station or the repair shop or whatever it is. He's, he's refilling. Hardy's got this nice sports car he's driving Amanda around in. And Keith fills up the gas tank and Hardy says, I recommend you keep your mind and your eyes off my property in reference to Amanda, which is just a great D-bag boyfriend line. Have you seen Wedding Crashers? I have not seen Wedding Crashers. So Bradley Cooper plays a douchebag boyfriend in that movie. I guess it's a fiance in that movie. These two might be the top two on my my tier list for D-bag boyfriends in film that I've seen. Well, I have a habit of bringing up other movie moments that remind me of things. And I don't want to do that to excess. But since you did bring in a movie just now, I'll say that the person I was thinking of was Billy Zane from Titanic as uh, as Caledon Hockley. Oh, that is a good one. That is an excellent one. I was mostly thinking comedies, but you're right. That one, that one belongs on the Mount Rushmore too, perhaps. So Amanda had been skipping class with uh, Hardy. She gets caught. She gets in trouble. She has to go to detention. And Keith sees this, and this is his excuse to find a way to share some time with her. So he sets off the fire alarm in school and gets detention himself, thinking that uh, he'll be able to go to detention with Amanda. Which, by the way, like you would be expelled for doing that now. Like That's not something... It's like played off here, but nowadays I feel like that's not just a silly prank anymore. Like it says fire trucks here. It's like hooked into like emergency response systems in 2020. But Amanda sweet talks her way out of detention, flirts with the detention teacher a little bit. But Keith, of course, is still stuck there. And this is how he re-encounters Duncan, because, of course, Duncan was also sent to detention. And this is the moment where Keith and Duncan gradually start to connect. Keith, his interest, along with fixing cars at the garage, his... uh his big interest is in art. He's always sketching or always painting. We see that skinhead Duncan is also interested in art. Yeah, Duncan is carving something into his desk with like a sharpened stick or something. Uh, you know, like smashed down the edge yeah. of a... Yeah, it's a knife. That's what. It, that's right. So he's, you know, making like tattoo art in the top of his desk. And Keith is sketching something in a notebook. And Duncan starts looking over his shoulder... And then there's this cracking sound and Duncan is pounding away at his desk to break the top off and show his art to Keith. It's like a caveman moment, but they bond over this. I thought that was pretty funny. It mostly leaves their rising friendship to be implied. Like you don't get to actually see them bonding more after this, which is a shame because 
I think whenever Duncan is on screen, the movie gets a little bit better. He ends up playing a pretty prominent role towards the end of the movie. I wish we could have seen exactly how they became friends a little bit more than just this kind of one exchange of being interested in in each other's art. So shortly thereafter, Amanda once again catches Hardy flirting with another girl and breaks up with him on the spot. And kind of weirdly, Keith is just like hanging and watching in the distance And as soon as this happened, he immediately pounces. He rushes up to Amanda and asks her out. And she's kind of all of a fluster because she just dumped Hardy and she says yes. And so now Keith has his his shot with Amanda. He's going to take her out on a date. And we spend the next several scenes with various people being astonished that Keith could land a date with Amanda. Very popular girl. Keith is kind of this outcast. And Watts becomes increasingly aware of her own romantic feelings towards Keith and does a couple things to try and trigger his jealousy. There's this one side character who's only kind of there for a scene who seems legitimately interested in Watts and Watts kind of gets him to act like, you know, he's hitting on her or whatever. And Keith just doesn't even catch it or even seem to care. So that that doesn't work for her. And when we see Amanda in all of this, so she had said yes to going out with Keith She seems to really have mixed thoughts about it. It's weird. We don't know exactly what she thinks. It's kind of implied that maybe she's not quite as into him as he is into her. Yeah, like it was a spur of the moment thing to agree to the date. Mostly it seems to just make Hardy mad and show that she has options. And now she actually has to follow through with what she's said. And of course, Hardy is not fond of this as overbearing D-bag boyfriends tend to not be when their ex gets attention from someone else. And so he begins concocting this scheme to get revenge. And I think the outcome he's looking for is completely beating up Keith and getting Amanda back. And it starts with, he invites Keith and Amanda to a party at his house, which would be the eat after their Keith and Amanda's date. I thought This conversation between Hardy and Keith had an interesting dynamic because they do discuss the oddity of this invitation. Keith is like, well, why why would I take her to a party at your house? That's a really strange thing to request, considering, you know, she just broke up with you and now she's going out with me. And Hardy kind of tries to play it off as, oh, well, I'm being the big man here. But even so... There's a lot of uneasiness here. And I, I I still don't know if they would agree to go to a party at this house, but at least it's addressed that this request is strange. Yeah, I agree. That was it is kind of an odd uh, an odd conversation. There's one moment where he says Hardy that is. Hardy says, "You know, when all this shakes out, you and I maybe we might end up friends." And Keith says, "I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen." It's kind of lampshading it to a little bit the the strangeness of it later the the sister character that i mentioned laura is out and about she overhears hardy talking to some of his friends about this revenge plan to get keith to the party to beat him up when laura hears this she gets the incorrect impression that amanda is in on it that she's just jerking keith around even though we, the audience, know that Amanda's just kind of indecisive at this point. And Laura goes and tells Keith that Amanda is in on, on all this. Keith decides that he's still going to go through with it, I guess. We also see Amanda kind of reacting to all of this. So 
one thing about Amanda's character is although she's popular and hangs with the rich kids, she's actually from the poor neighborhood herself. And now that she's broken up with the rich Hardy, she finds her social standing diminishing. Uh, her friends are like weirdly pressuring her to get back together with Hardy. And she's she's staying strong on it. I didn't know quite what to make of this dynamic of Amanda. She too decides to see it through and, and actually go on this date with Keith. Watts, who is really despairing at this point that Keith is attracted to Amanda, is going to be going out with her, does like the friend breakup thing where we really shouldn't hang out together anymore. Although this is like discarded one scene later. So it's like a, it's a high impact moment where she says something like, I drive you crazy. You drive me crazy. Maybe we should not see each other anymore. But then like two scenes later, they're back to hanging out again which is kind of a John Hughes type thing where the drama and plot aren't always exactly coherent. But this is the moment that Watts kind of puts it out there that she is interested in Keith. And yeah, it's, it's she doesn't that other way, but she doesn't really leave it veiled at all, which makes you wonder whether Keith just <laughs> didn't get it. Like he was completely obtuse to it or he was just ignoring it or he just wasn't sure how he felt. I kind of feel like it's a failure on Eric Stoltz's part to like convey what, Keith was feeling at any of this. I'll get to my complaints on Eric Stoltz in a bit. Watts and Keith have a moment. I guess it's at the garage as he's working, doing his work where Watts is like, Oh, you got to be ready to, to kiss Amanda. You have to do, you have to know how to do it. And they do the practice kiss, which I've always thought is one of the stupid, stupider tropes in romantic comedies where friends are involved. It's like, I can't imagine anyone in real life ever actually doing this. Like if you're platonic friends doing a practice kiss together, it's it's just bizarre to me. It also like diminishes the romantic tension because part of the tension of a film is like you you see these two actors and you you want them to get together and there's like a, a visceral thrill in seeing them actually connecting. But if you kind of blow that tension on a practice kiss, then it kind of diminishes it. Like in Friends... In Friends, it's not a practice kiss. It's like a dream kiss. But it's the same dynamic where you see Ross and Rachel actually kissing in a dream in season one. But it's like, no, we don't want to see those actors actually get together. It like ruins the tension of, of that. So I don't know. I always I never like it when they do that. Mm-hmm. And to me, this seemed like the moment that Keith starts coming around, which reads, I don't know, as a little skeevy. It's like, oh, she's actually good at this. Maybe I'm into this now. Right, yeah, because the, the kiss does get steamy, but he doesn't really acknowledge it. He even, like, teases her about it, and I don't know. came off odd to me. So then at this point, we get this, bit, this like, this montage of all these characters getting ready for the big date. So you'd think, oh, it's just, uh, it's just Amanda and Keith. But it turns out basically everybody's been roped into this evening at this point. So Watts is actually going to go as the the chauffeur for Amanda and Keith. Of course, we see Hardy getting ready because he's going to be throwing his party and he's planning to to beat up Keith. And and then we also see uh, Duncan, skinhead. He turns out he's going to play a role in this as well. And as Keith is about to go out the door, we, we get a conversation with Keith and his dad where Keith has blown his life savings from working at the garage, years and years of savings that was supposed to be going towards college, which of course Keith's dad is trying to get him to apply to colleges, get ready to go to college. And he blows it all on a pair of diamond earrings for Amanda because 
at one point Amanda mentioned that she had to borrow her nice earrings from her friend. This is such a weird move for a first date. Any first date, it would be an over-the-top gesture. But bear in mind that at this point, he thinks that Amanda is pulling like a carry on him. Like, you know, when they when they make Carrie the prom queen, that that this is all this whole date is false pretense that she's going to like pull him into a back room and he's going to get beat up. Yeah, no, it doesn't make any sense. It's also just infuriating. Like, dude, you've been working on this for this saving this money for years and you blow it on an empty status symbol. I don't know. And then he tried to explain it to his dad and his he was like, you got to trust me. This is about what's it's for me. And like the dad backs down and I don't get why the dad would have backed down. Like if I were the dad, I would have been like, this is dumb. I'm driving you. To, you're not yet 18. I'm driving you to the store and you're going to maybe he is 18. I don't know. But like we need you're going to go return those and get your full money back so you can save that money for college. Like I don't get why the dad backed down at that point, but. Well, the conversation is something like Keith says, no, dad, you don't understand. I'm a loser. And this is my one (laughs) chance to do anything meaningful. And the dad's like, oh, okay." Well, when you put it that way, it was a very strange moment. But I think I think that was the explanation. (laughs) Just bizarre. So now it's time for the date. Watts driving Keith, they go and pick up Amanda, which I got to say would be weird tension in the car, especially if Keith at this point has some suspicion that Watts has uh, feelings for him and maybe he's not sure how he feels. But having her in the car for this date, it's it's another odd move here towards the end. And they go to a, a fancy restaurant and Watts waits outside in the car. Amanda and Keith go in and they have their like first actual conversation it made me realize that basically they hadn't really interacted like at all prior to this. And they don't really get along that well when they talk, when they have this conversation. They clash about whether he's being nice enough to her. In the end, they do end up having like a nice dinner. There's this weird thing where it's a fancy restaurant and he orders caviar, but then it's a surprise when the big meal comes and it's just burgers and fries. And I think Hughes was like trying to evoke some of the the class struggles stuff here but it just didn't really connect for me exactly what was going on yeah it was a little hard to read i thought it was going to be that he ordered all of the quote-unquote rich foods you know get the diamonds get the rich foods because in his mind that's what she's going to want but that was a misread that would have been the yeah that would have made sense i i agree so after dinner the second leg of the date is he brings her to the art museum. And at the art museum, which is closed, but we learn that Duncan's dad is a security guard there, and they managed to get him in. Uh, they Sorry, they managed to get Keith and Amanda in to go get like this nighttime tour of the, the art gallery. I'm not going to keep harping on how weird everything is here, but there's some weird stuff going on here. Like, the lights are all off, so... I don't, would it be fun to be in an art gallery when the lights are all off? That that doesn't seem very fun to me. And it culminates in, I guess, Keith has framed and hung up his picture of Amanda. So we see him working on this painting. We don't actually get to see it. It's kind of gets veiled and hidden throughout the film. And then this is kind of like a reveal. And what it is is this 
Very nice painting of Leah Thompson, uh, Amanda's character that I guess he had been working on this whole time. He shows her this painting, and then they, I guess they go outside to like some, it almost looks like an amphitheater or something, like some outdoor area of the museum where they have this, this conversation in which Keith finally admits after having gone through the motions of all of this date that he knew the date was a setup and it was a joke. But after some back and forth, they I guess they ultimately admit to using each other to some extent. And I don't know, like when I first watched this movie, I got the impression here that like they were basically admitting that they weren't actually right for each other. Like this line where they're using each other. But then he still gives her the earrings and they still have a makeout session right here. They have a big kiss. And when Keith gives her the diamonds, he says... This box is my future. Every cent I ever earned is for you. Which, to your point, is a bold move for a girl that you think is not actually into you. And at some point, Amanda says, This is insane. It doesn't make any sense. Which kind of aligns with how I was feeling at that point. Yeah, this this exchange seems to bode ill for this relationship. Right. And as they're doing their big kiss, Watts sees them. She's becoming more and more despondent. But she picks them up. They all go to Hardy's big party where, uh, we, you know, we know that Hardy is planning to beat up Keith. And of course they arrive. Keith and Hardy, they they scuffle a little. They butt heads. And Hardy orders his cronies to take Keith outside and kick the crap out of him. So Hardy isn't even going to do it himself. And just at this moment, Duncan and a bunch of Duncan's threatening buddies who had all been in detention with Keith come busting into the party and they're very imposing and they, they cause Hardy to back down and they even make Hardy grovel a little bit just when they're about to, to leave. I guess this is like the justice is served. We had the threatening guys come to the party. So you can't beat me up just as they're about to leave. Um, Amanda comes and slaps Hardy twice real good. And this is when I saw some more back to the future parallels because you've got Leah Thompson slapping a bully and the bully is, sending his goons to manhandle a Michael J. Fox stand-in. That's true. <laughs> now that you're pointing these out, there really are a lot of... If you imagine Eric Stoltz... If he was Marty, yeah. Michael J. Fox, yeah. There there really are a lot of connections there. So they, they leave the party, and as Keith and Amanda walk out the door, they see Watts, who's kind of watching them. She's nervous, clearly, I guess, about what's going to happen to Keith, what's going on with him and Amanda. And this is the moment that the love epiphany occurs. So Watts kind of runs away and Amanda gives the earrings back and signals approval for Keith, who I guess at this point we all know has realized his actual feelings for Watts to go and chase after Watts. This moment read as off to me. I don't know. The, it was like, why would he suddenly be interested in Watts after he's done so much work and gotten so lucky pursuing things with Amanda? Like, everything is going his way. Uh, Amanda seems into it, too. So why would she suddenly change her mind? As far as, like, how does she know what Watts is feeling? She hasn't been watching the movie all along. <laughs> I don't know. It's an odd moment. Yeah. Maybe this is why they changed the pretty and pink ending. Maybe the the original ending, people were like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Why would 
we have things be going well and then have it turn around, have him turn around and go for the other person that they've been avoiding the whole movie. It doesn't, doesn't really make sense. Yeah, that's why I said, so my, the three things that you need in this story, the third one was you need the love epiphany moment to really actually be believable. And I would say that it did not pass the test here. There was not really a compelling reason for why he actually had this love epiphany. And more to the point why Amanda was in on it, like you said, it just doesn't make sense. So, But nonetheless, Keith chases after Watts, finds her, gives her a big kiss, and gives her the earrings. And the last line of the movie is, you look good wearing my future, is what Keith says to Watts, because it's the diamond rings are my future. And I have to say that's a very, very good final line of a film like this. And in fact, it almost makes the the whole subplot of wasting your life savings on diamonds. It almost retroactively makes it a little bit better because it like very clearly outlines those as a symbol of what is Keith actually going to do with the rest of his life. Like if you break it into the dichotomy of like this thing, this nice thing you could have or the thing that's actually good for you. And he, he goes for the latter, like his actual best friend, you know, it kind of almost makes sense. It still doesn't quite work, but I, I did like that last line. Yeah, I agree. It helped uh, regain some ground in, in my eyes of how much I like the movie. As it kind of zooms out, fades away, the soundtrack, which had mostly been this very synth-heavy, kind of overbearing 80s soundtrack, which overall I think is not that good of a soundtrack. It's pretty generic. But it concludes on this very charming cover of Elvis's Can't Help Falling in Love by Lick the Tins is the name of the band. So it's this super Irish group. I, I would assume they're actually from Ireland, but I haven't looked that up. But it's definitely Irish style music and prominently features a tin whistle. And I was grooving to this as the end credits were rolling. Uh, I was thinking again of Titanic, probably the most prestigious featuring of a tin whistle in a blockbuster soundtrack. I thought, well, you know, just because there's a tin whistle doesn't make it Titanic, Brian. You need to open your mind a little bit. But sure enough, at the very end, it segues, the tune changes, uh, Can't Help Falling in Love comes to an end, and the group starts playing John Ryan's polka, which goes... And sure enough, that's the tune that they dance to in the third class party in Titanic. That's pretty funny. All these connections. That's right. You know, I got to rewatch Titanic. I saw it when I was maybe in middle school, maybe early high school. And I was not primed to enjoy a movie like that at that age. And I've watched clips from it and I've just read a lot about it. I know you have it on one of your top 100 films list. But that's one I've been meaning to rewatch, so I think I will at some point. I think it's at number 57 on my <laughs> 100 list. Is it weird that I knew that too? I didn't say it, but I actually did. It was number 57. <laughs> I think I reread the article not too long ago. I, so. I'm glad. I Yeah, I've got, I've got them cemented in my brain, even though if I were to expand the list or update the list, those numbers would change. But, of course, yeah. yeah. So that wraps up. Some Kind of Wonderful. Man, I just had a brain fart, too, with the bland title of this this film. Uh, Some Kind of Wonderful from 1987. So, this is the part of the episode where we switch to talking about first some good things about this film, then some bad things about, or sorry, not so good things about this film. 
And then we will give it a, is it good rating? So let's start by talking about some some things that are good things in this film that we might not have already covered in the, the recap. I guess I'll start here with, this is a John Hughes teen drama. That was, of course, his his signature brand were these teen dramas. He wrote Pretty in Pink. He wrote Sixteen Candles. He wrote The Breakfast Club. And there's a good reason, I think, that the teen dramas he wrote became very popular. The characters in his films, including this one, do tend to feel like pretty complex, lived-in characters. They typically have strong, relatable undercurrents of darkness or pathos. I also think his dialogue can really crackle. It, it just has some depth to it. It's funny and sharp. It strikes to thematic cores, but it's rarely too on the nose. And there's just lots of good turns of phrases and, and wittiness in it. In particular, I thought Watts had tons of really good lines in this. Another thing about John Hughes movies is they, they tend to have just really good empathy for the characters. There's dramatic consequences for actions. You, you get in the characters' feelings, you get in their heads uh, pretty well. And it's, it's like not a trivial thing to do to write angsty teenagers in a way that actually makes you connect with them. So I think this hits most of John Hughes' strengths pretty well. I think it checks all those boxes. And uh, I think the, the writing and the dialogue is probably the strongest part of this film overall. Did you enjoy the writing and the dialogue? There are definitely good exchanges. I, I would say the dialogue is pretty strong throughout. I've seen a few John Hughes films. Now I'm thinking about it. I wonder if what I saw was actually pretty in pink. I've definitely seen 16 Candles. I've seen Breakfast Club. I don't know if this movie ranks as highly in my mind as some that I've seen in the past, but it does have a lot of those features. It's, it's clearly on brand for Hughes. Right. I would say one thing this movie doesn't have that most, if not all, of Hughes' other movies have is a really signature scene, like a scene that you can, usually it's a visual scene you can make gifts out of. In fact, the, most of the ones I'm thinking of are dance scenes, like mini dance numbers in the middle of the movie where the characters are limp syncing along or just dancing along. So in Breakfast Club, you have the scene where all the characters dance you know, Molly Ringwald up on the stairs in the library. It's like the signature shot from the 1980s. But then you also have the the kids dancing on the rails. They're, I don't know, the wall that they're dancing on. Then in Pretty in Pink, John Cryer plays Ducky. And it's one of the only scenes of this movie I've seen. But he does like a lip sync dance to uh, an Otis Redding song. And that's like a really electric and watchable moment. And then in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you have Matthew Broderick in the parade, and you have Twist and Shout and Donka Shane and all that. But there's no good dance scene in this film. It's it's kind of disappointing. Yeah, we're missing a dance party. We we had a party, but no dancing. Yeah, that's true. And I would just say in general, there's no like one wowie zowie scene in this film, which I I like to see in a John Hughes film. But as far as things other than the script, uh, things that I liked in this film. I think the Watts character, played by Mary Stuart Masterson, is the real highlight here. I think she does a great job acting this character out. She conveys so much with her looks and her expressions. She depicts real emotion and growth in the character, just visually, like even not even in the dialogue, and just the way that she plays the character. And as she and you can always follow like what is going on in her head by the way that she reacts to things and the way she plays things. 
It's just good acting. She's easily the highlight of the film for me from an acting perspective. I would agree that she does the best job of conveying emotions, which I suppose is the job of an actor. (laughs) There's also something that I'm not sure that there's more in the direction and the acting than it is in the script. And I actually wonder if John Hughes meant it this way or not when he wrote it. So there's the joke that Skinhead makes at the beginning by calling Watts a lesbian. And she doesn't really deny it. There's almost like a a queerness about her. It's like kind of an appealing ambiguity. She's not boxed in. I'm really glad she doesn't get like her, you know, like the ending of Grease or the ending of, uh, you know, these movies where there's the tomboyish character, or the the character who uh, needs to get all prettied up for the boy. Like that doesn't happen in this movie. She stays herself. And in fact, the moment that we would expect her to get all prettied up, she instead dresses as a male chauffeur would. So it definitely like leaves open that there's more going on with this character than we're seeing on the surface, even though she clearly is very into uh, Keith. And I think this is about as well as the 80s could do depicting complexly sexuality of a, a character that's not just black or white heterosexual. And I think that that actually has aged pretty well, where in movies like this, that typically does not age well. So... I enjoyed that that bit um, and, and that character quite a bit. I also think this movie does great with the side characters. Most of the side characters are a lot of fun. We talked about Duncan. He's always got energy. And I, I really think he's underdeveloped. Like, we could have gotten more Duncan. I would have rather have seen more Duncan than some of the stuff we actually did see. I liked Laura, the sister character. She came across as pretty fully realized, even though she's in just a couple of scenes. And, of course, Hardy... Hard to envision a better D-bag boyfriend than than Hardy as played. Hardy Jens. It's just a good name for a, a D-bag boyfriend, too. And, he, and he's played by Craig Sheffer, who I don't know anything about him other than this. So Craig Sheffer sounds like a pretty good D-bag boyfriend name, too. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I think overall, Howard Deutsch actually does pretty good with the uh, the direction and the visuals. There's a an appealing sort of, it made me think of like flannel, just the, the the look of the film. It's what I had in my notes, flannel color scheme. There are, there are a handful of moments of really good direction, particularly around Watts. There is some weird stuff too, and I think the, the settings in the uh, poor neighborhood are a little bit on the nose for the poor neighborhood. But overall, I think I think this movie looks, looks pretty good and it's, it's pretty pleasant to watch. That's interesting, a flannel scheme would almost call to mind uh, early 90s more than late 80s, like the, the onset of grunge. That's interesting, yeah. And I think overall, I probably like this movie more than most people do, just because I tend to like this kind of story. But going back over the different, the three things that a movie in this story format needs to do. So the first one is it needs to establish good chemistry, but also plausible platonic friendship between the, the two good friends. I would say that it does decently at that. I actually found it pretty believable. So for that one, that one gets a check mark from me. The second one is it needs to convince us that the main character is actually really into, really attracted to the the glamorous one. We need to really buy that he would he would be head over heels for her. And for me, I do not get that. And we well, I'll talk about my thoughts on. Amanda's character and Leah Thompson in a, in a moment when we get to the not so good things, but, and also Eric Stoltz, but I just didn't really ever feel any 
chemistry from him being attracted to her or between them at all or this vibe from from leah thompson so for that one no check yeah i'll I'll dive into that one i guess in a second too and then the third one is is the epiphany good the love epiphany and i think we agreed that that did not really make sense for either of us so for me it hit one of the three things it needs to do well so even though i like this type of story i would say it didn't nail it necessarily but that's a good transition point like I said, we're going to talk here a little bit about uh, Leah Thompson and uh, the Amanda character. What are some things we did not like about this movie? And for me, I did not like the Amanda character. I did not like Leah Thompson's portrayal of her. I thought that this character had promise. The, if you were to just outline what this character is, this person that gets talked about is like this a legendary amount of sexiness to her. But also she's like from the poor neighborhood and she hangs out with the rich kids, but really she's kind of got these roots in the poor neighborhood that maybe could be the connection point for the main character. I just don't think any of that really comes out. I end up not even knowing what I should think about this character by the end of it. I, I think part of it is Leah Thompson wasn't the right person for this this movie. I tried to think who would have been the right person for this if I were to do a dream recasting of this. And the best I could come up with is no one from the time period who would have been available, but Kaylee Cuoco, I don't know how you say her name. From Big Bang Theory. Yeah, but she also was in Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter. What is it? It's like three rules. I I can't remember what it is. I think it might have been eight. Yeah, something like that. So she plays the the teenage daughter in that. And I think what she has there would have been a good fit for this film. That was the best I could come up with for my dream recasting for this. It sounds like maybe, though, you didn't agree with me on on Amanda and Leah Thompson being a problematic character. Yeah, so I want to step in and defend this character. Um, Maybe not so much the casting. I would agree, and I feel like talking this way, I sound like the the old neckbeard react meme. (laughs) But yes, Leah Thompson is not like Tex Avery double take hot. Like your eyes pop out of your head and your head spins around like a periscope and makes a foghorn sound and your heart <laughs> pounds out of your ribs and shatters them. But she's very good looking. And I mean, if you see pictures now, she has aged extremely well. I can see why he would get hung up on Leia Thompson, even if I don't quite see how she would attain that legend status that you're talking about. I completely agree that she is, <laughs> I mean, like, she's a Hollywood actress. She's she's very, of course, she is beautiful, absolutely. For me, it's maybe less about just the actual attractiveness and more about the, the sweetness that Leah Thompson has. That's why Leah Thompson was such a good casting in Back to the Future, because she had to be kind of both this doting mom and this teenager. And so the sw- there's like this kind of, I don't know if sweetness is the right word. Like uh, there's, she's very affable and almost like caring. Just that's kind of the natural way she looks and carries herself is that she's just this, this, this loving person. The sister has a line. The girl is sex. And I don't know. That's not how Thompson carries herself. That's fair. But then not so much a defense of the casting of Leah Thompson in the role, but as a defense of the character, mm-hmm. I think she's worthy of a little more credit than you're giving the character. 
I thought this movie did a decent job of portraying the struggle that a person would have if just being very good looking has lifted her onto a pedestal and into this new social strata where she doesn't really belong beyond having that outlier characteristic of being super attractive. I think that would be a weird situation to be in. I, I mean, I can't relate to that struggle, <laughs> but I can imagine that it would be there. And, you know, it, it comes out when they finally start their date and they don't really have anything to talk about. Keith knows her by her appearance. That is the connection. That's how he's gauged her. You know, like the way that the sister has portrayed her as she is sex or whatever that comes out just from seeing her not from knowing her at all she doesn't really have anything tethering her to any real relationship when people just take her at face value there's a really good line i thought when they have their date in the art museum and he's got her picture that he made of her you know it's it's kind of the nice guy thing of oh i was there all along I've, I've seen the real you. And she kind of shuts him down and says, well, you don't really know me. You've just seen me. Is that my soul hanging in that gallery? No, it's my face. That's true. She does get a few moments. That, that is a good moment. You know what? Maybe I'll read the, uh, the young adult adaptation and get back to you on that. We'll but, uh, both loop back here. We'll yeah. do the reading and then we'll have a fuller appreciation. I think that's fair. I think I think you're probably right. I'm being a little harsh, but I don't know. I didn't personally like it, but I, I appreciate you uh, giving that other perspective. I'm going to think a little bit more on that. So. Same. Speaking of what I think is a miscast, Eric Stoltz is a is a big oof from me on this one. He's the main character. You, you need a, an awesome main actor to pull off any romantic drama. You need You need the lead guy to be perfect. And Eric Stoltz is pretty disappointing, in my opinion. Early on, when he hasn't really talked much, hasn't really interacted with Leah Thompson or even really with Watts or his family very much, there's this sense that maybe he's there's like some hidden soulfulness in him, something that he's holding back. But then as the movie goes along, you realize that this thing that maybe was appealingly like, oh, what's he actually thinking? is just like a lack of acting. Like he, there's really nothing he's ever going to convey. It's not like he was holding back. It's just, he's never going to show it. And everything that I liked about Mary Stewart Masterson is Watts, where she, you can feel what she's feeling just by the way that she acts and the way she delivers lines. There's, there's nothing there for, for Stoltz, in my opinion. I don't ever really get a sense of what his character is. I don't know. I thought a lot about who would have been a better person to play the role because another thing is he's supposed to be there's a lot it's played up that he's an outcast that he's weird that he's a loser but the way that eric stoltz plays him is just like a i don't know just like a lovelorn artsy guy like it's not that weird so the best i could come up with for a dream recasting is john cusack from the same era problem with that he would have been absolutely amazing in this role i think but the problem is that, that it's basically just recreated Say Anything, where he plays the weird outcast guy. And you know what? He's actually believable as the weird outcast guy in Say Anything. That would have been a much better fit. Is that the one with the boombox? Yes. Have you seen Say Anything? Okay. I have not seen Say Anything. Okay, that's definitely going to be on our uh, our list at some point here. Okay, but that's another one that would be in the vague 
vague titles yeah. category for me. That one at least has the stylistic dot, dot, dot. Say anything, dot, dot, dot. I don't know if that really does much, though. For me, with Eric Stoltz, I just kept seeing him as an off-brand Michael J. Fox. <laughs> Michael J. Fox would have been a lot better in the role, but I don't think Michael J. Fox embodies what Keith is supposed to be. Like He's he's kind of got his little neurotic thing going on. It could have worked for it, but that is funny that he, he basically made his career being a... <laughs> A stand-in for Michael J. Fox. So I did talk about some of the things that are good about John Hughes films, and I should mention now what some of the things I do not like about John Hughes films. And we've kind of covered most of these already, but just to go through them real quick, the drama is often, and like the plots that are result from the drama are often pretty incomprehensible. Like things just happen, and you don't really know exactly why. And I think we both got a sense of that for the second half of this movie. Mm-hmm. By the end of it, you don't really always have a strong sense that the characters learned a lot, that they grew from it. You do get some of that, but not too much of it here. Breakfast Club, they even lampshade this. They're like, oh, well, after all this is done, are we going to be different at all? Or is it just going to be like normal? Well, I guess we'll probably just go back to living our normal lives, like as if this didn't happen. And in general, I think Hughes is good at setup and not quite so good at endings. The premises are usually pretty good and the, the build up to those. But I often find Hughes films to be more memorable for their first halves than their second halves. And lastly, I mentioned that this movie did a pretty good job avoiding it. But a lot of Hughes movies have elements that have not aged well. Very sexist or racist. In 16 Candles, there's an Asian character named... I think it's Long Duck Dong or something like that. And it does like the gong sound whenever he comes on screen. He's like one of the most racist characters I've ever seen in any film. <laughs> I remember we watched uh, we watched 16 Candles on the last day of school in 10th grade. And uh, yeah, I was very aware <laughs> of that. That movie also has a moment where like a character is passed out, a girl character, an attractive girl character is passed out. And one male character says to another male character, you can take her home and, you know, do whatever you'd like with her. Which, again, kind of rapey. I mean, very explicitly rapey, I would say. Yep. Yeah, you have things like that in John John Hughes. Not, not too bad in this one, though. Nothing where I was really cringing. We already talked a little bit about it, but I, I just want to reemphasize how angry I was the first time I watched this movie that he blew all of his college money. If I were a dad, I would be furious if my idiot son blew his money on a uh, pair of stupid earrings. And then one little thing that I just wanted to bring up is I didn't like the uh, the very last scene where where Keith is basically confessing his, his love epiphany to Watts. He has like this teasing dialogue where he was like, oh, come on. You knew you were going to get these earrings in the end. You knew it, didn't you? And that just came off as kind of mean spirited to me because Watts had been pining for him all movie and he had just been brushing her aside. And now he's like making jokes about it. I don't know. It just seemed kind of mean to me. So that wraps up my uh, list of things that I thought were not so good. Were there any good things or not so good things that uh, were on your mind other than what we've already talked about here, Brian? I think you've covered it well. And I guess as something maybe not so good, I would just reemphasize that the beat at the end, the sudden pivot, the love epiphany seemed abrupt to me. 
seemed maybe not fully earned. Uh, uh, even to the point, like, Watts, as we've said, the actress does a really good job of conveying that she has feelings for Keith. And we see her hurting any time that he, like, makes a stride with Amanda and is distanced from Watts. But I didn't really have a good reason in terms of story or personality why she would be into Keith. Other than I, I think I, I've been reading some stuff lately about the, the rule of propinquity. Are you familiar with the principle of propinquity, Dan? No. It says that people are attracted to the person who is close to them physically. <laughs> So it, it's just a scientific way, basically, of saying the girl next door. Interesting. Or like the ap apartment neighbor across the hall. You're like, oh, do you have sparks with that person? Or does it all stem from that is the person who is here <laughs> physically nearby? Who is, who is right next to me. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, it kind of seems like that. And this is another, comes back to me to Stoltz not doing a good job as an actor here is because he doesn't give you anything to make you feel why she would be into him. I mean, there's nothing other really than good looks, and I guess their long-standing friendship that implies... And the what is it? The rule of pro... What is it? Propinquity. Propinquity. Yeah, and that's the best explanation I got, too. But with those things said, is now the time to make a verdict? Make a rating call? Yeah, let's go for it. So this is our signature section, Is It Good? We have an, an eight-step scale of goodness on which we rate all of the films that we watch. So, Brian, what is what is your take? Is it good for some kind of wonderful 1987? I would have to say it is good. That's where I put mine. I say five out of eight. Good. And here is my reasoning. I liked this movie. I actually enjoyed it quite a bit, more than I thought I might. But I've found that when I'm making these judgments... What it comes down to me is how much am I going to push someone else to watch this film? Like, will I grab somebody by the shoulder and say, hey, I have a movie that you need to see. And for me, the ones that would provoke that response are the ones that are going to maybe get an exceptionally good, a seven out of eight, even, even like a very good. I'm going to probably make some effort to point people towards this movie. I don't know that I would do that with some kind of wonderful, but I came away having had a positive experience. And I think especially, you know, when the credit song rolls and I'm vibing super hard to the music, I think that's a good sign that this, this movie has not left any kind of bad taste in my mouth, no negative emotions whatsoever. I think it was a worthwhile cinematic endeavor. And for me, it was good. I'm glad to hear that you didn't not enjoy it. <laughs> so where does it rank for you dan i'm curious so when i was watching it i got it about halfway through i was like man the writing in this is really good i really enjoy spending time with these characters and watts and then the last half hour i get mad at the college money i get mad at having no idea what's going on with amanda and keith i don't quite get why watts is really into keith and then it just movie kind of ends. It just the love epiphany happens and then the movie's over and we're, we're listening to Tin Whistle. And so I was kind of thinking that it was going to be a very good for me. And then when the credits were rolling, I said, no, that's just good. It's good for me. So I'm, I'm in the exact same spot as you. It's a it's a five out of eight. 
I I think it is very competent most of the time. I think there is some disappointing execution, but overall, uh, it's 90 minutes well spent. So with that rating, we're basically done here. We usually like to have some parting thoughts, something that we are watching, thinking about, or doing that uh, unrelated to this film. So Brian, what what are your unrelated thoughts here? Well, I have one more related thought. Oh, we'll go see for if it. it bears any fruit at all. But uh, you talked for a while about your interest in this story structure, this string of tropes that comes up again and again in these teen films and narratives. And I was wondering, why do you think you connect with this trope so much? Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. So I think there's a couple things that feed into it. So one is I'm a junkie for a twist ending. I love narrative misdirection. And particularly if it's like narrative misdirection where you are rooting for something to happen and it doesn't seem like it's going to happen and then it happens. That's always a good feeling. And that's kind of what this is. This trope is. So like, I just like it when movies end that way. They, they feel like they're leading to one thing and then they end a different way. That's just a satisfying watch. I also think that it's a thematically rich story. I liked how you called it a string of tropes. That's kind of a good way to define it, I guess, to categorize it. But I think I kind of touched on this earlier, but usually it can be like a way for a the main character to like figure something out about themselves in the process. I think there's also like a element of just fantasy for me. Like obviously I'm happily married now. Maybe less so when I first started getting attached. Certainly less so. I was not happily married when I was in middle school. <laughs> you, you were just less married. <laughs> but the prospect of having someone be attracted to you, into you, really find you to be all that without you realizing it and having it be someone that you're very fond of, to me, that was just a very appealing fantasy to me. And also, I liked, I think, from the fantasy element... I like always liked it when the the geek gets a shot with the popular girl, and usually those don't those don't go well for the the nerd, the outcast, because that's who I always identified with. But I always liked it when they got a shot, and I guess one reason that this this endures for me is that it brings me back to my own high school whirlwind romance with my wife a little bit. It was very far from exactly this. There was no element of there is like a popular different girl that I had a shot with, but mostly the element where I was like, I had a connection with her. I was friends with her in a non-romantic way. In fact, I was in marching band with her and you at the same time. And then it kind of came to a head. There was a romantic epiphany, a love epiphany for, for me. And it turned out that she had been feeling the same way. And I think like I have a sentimental connection to that time in my life and I have to say my senior year of high school, which is when, you know, I, I started dating my now wife. It's one of my favorite times of my life ever. And it was just a very fun time. A lot of people hate high school. I did not hate high school. I loved high school. That's where I made my best friends. I had my most fun. And I think movies like this bring me sentimental to that that time of my life. Bring bring me back there. So that's why in general I enjoy high school movies and teen movies. At least that's part of it. So all right. Well, that's kind of what I was digging for. I also loved high school. You know, that could that could be for better or worse. Uh, here we are. Uh, but we're still very good friends. Uh, we're making art together yeah. of one sort or another. I think it's a good place to be. 
So pivoting back to our, our unrelated thoughts, our parting yes. thoughts, what's been on your mind this week or what have you been watching, reading, etc.? So I did have something specifically for this section. Uh, a couple episodes back, there was talk of favorite trailers, most impactful movie trailers that we've seen. And we never got back to that. We said we would do it, I think, last episode, and, and we just completely forgot. But I wanted to come back to share one of my favorite trailers, which we will link somewhere in the supplemental media of wherever we post this. But the one I wanted to shout out was in like, I think it must have been 1999 or 2000. There was a VHS release of the Indiana Jones films. I got this box set and would just watch those all the time. Weirdly enough, because it was a trailer for this VHS release, so I don't know why it was at the start of those VHSs. Seems like it kind of defeats the point if you're trying to draw new people in. But it's this like supercut trailer of just all the Indiana Jones movies all together. And it starts out with, if adventure has a name, it must be Indiana Jones. <laughs> and just cutting, cutting together all the best parts of all the movies. And I really love that trailer. You'd be a good trailer voice guy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, you sent me that link and I enjoyed it. It also has the Young Indiana Jones Adventures, I think it's called. And it mentioned 12 feature-length stories for that. I didn't know what that was. I had to look it up. Have you ever watched Young Indiana Jones? So I knew a little bit more about it than you coming into it, but I, you probably know more now. I, I need to do some reading. Uh, I believe it was a TV show that was on in like the early 90s. And the premise was that it's chapters in Indiana Jones's young life. And so there's like four different actors that play him at different ages from being like, you know, like uh, episode one, Anakin Skywalker young to when he's more of a young adult. And then they repackaged this show somehow into these feature length installments that they were trying to sell alongside the main Indiana Jones movies as the complete adventures. But no, I don't really know how it was formatted originally and what they changed about it to do the VHS release. I'm not sure. What did you find out? Uh, nothing more than what you just said, but I'm, I'm curious if they like recut TV episodes into a feature length format. That would be a pretty, pretty cool thing to do. Pretty interesting thing to do to like transform a TV show into a movie format. It's kind of like how for, I mentioned this last week too, The Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, the classic Disney movie, is actually three shorts recut into just over an hour uh, to make like a feature movie. I do know that when I was a little kid, I had a VHS that was called Gargoyles The Awakening. And it was the first five episodes of the Gargoyles TV show cut together into movie length. And that worked pretty well. So that's interesting. I think it's yeah. I think it's possible. So my parting thought this week is for the listener's benefit. So I've been reading a book called Film Studies and Introduction by Ed Sikov. I don't know how you pronounce his last name, S-I-K-O-V, which is a short but thorough overview of film studies as like a, as a study, as, as like an academic pursuit and to really try and understand and how to discuss films. And it's been really interesting. I've really learned a lot 
like what specific vocabulary that I kind of know the gist of it, but like what that actually means. Like, what does it mean when we say cinematography, for example, or what is the difference between a story and a narrative? What's the difference between a fade and a wipe and all these different things that I kind of know a little bit about, Oh, what is, what are the different types of lighting and how do you describe this look? Is it low key lighting, high key lighting, specifically what is a wide shot versus all these different terms that I, you know, I kind of intuitively know from having read a little bit here and there and just kind of context, but it's, it's been kind of enlightening to learn about. So I've enjoyed it. I might have to give that a look. I actually did do film studies in college. uh, So I think I've got a fair understanding of the glossary, but I admire you for picking up what (laughs) sounds like a textbook just as a cold read. It, yeah, it's designed to be a pretty uh, bare bones as textbooks go and pretty readable. It's it's not too overstuffed or dense, but it's it's good. So I'll let you know if uh, there's anything particularly enlightening relative to the, the movies that we have watched or we continue to watch that I, I learned from that. So Cool. All right. Well, thank you for joining me to talk about some kind of wonderful, Brian. Um, before we go, I think you have to give me a movie watching assignment for next week. Oh, I'm ready. So the Christmas season is here. If you've been paying attention, it's been here for a while. More so maybe even than in a normal year. I think people were ready to jump into it. I think maybe uh, we're recording this here on Real Deal Black Friday. But I think at least some companies have kind of stretched out their Black Friday stuff. uh, Maybe to avoid crowding. You know, try to... to make six foot distancing more possible. Uh, but, but maybe just because retailers are hurting this year. Tis the, tis the season. And on that subject, I have a fitting selection. It is the Pee Wee's Playhouse Christmas special from 1988. How big of a Pee Wee aficionado would you say that you are, Dan? I would say that I have very little familiarity with peewee so i am not an aficionado i don't have any positive or negative associations with him okay going in blind into the peewee fray is this a good peewee starting point i honestly can't say i (laughs) i don't want to give the impression that you gotta like you know a couple episodes ago you tracked down night of the living dead as a lead-in I don't really think you need to do that. Uh, If you want to, most of the Pee Wee films and shows are on Netflix. He struck some deal with them a couple years back that they like released a new movie that he did. But if you want to watch one other piece of supplemental Pee Wee to understand, I would recommend episode two of Pee Wee's Playhouse, which is the episode where they have a luau. Okay. So, so it's a, they have a Hawaiian party. Uh, if you want a little bit of the flavor <laughs> that's not the Christmas special, you may want to watch that one too. Okay. It's just a half, just a half hour episode. Maybe I'll do that. Or maybe I'll go in blind. We'll, we'll see how much time I have this week. But I'm looking forward to watching it and discussing it with you next week. So thank you, Brian. And thank you listeners very much for joining us this week. This has been The Goods, our 12th episode, Wrapped. I'm Dan. And I'm Brian. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you check in next time. <laughs>